0: We are excited to welcome back to the Yaakov M. Show, Rabin Yamin Rose, editor-at-large at Meshpacha magazine, 14 years, news editor, our go-to expert on Israeli politics. Ben-Yamin, welcome back. Thank you. My pleasure, Yaakov. Even by Israeli politics standards, the past few weeks have been filled with turmoil. How surprised are you that Prime Minister Netanyahu was not able to assemble a coalition and that we're headed to new elections?
1: I think most people were surprised by it, although really they shouldn't have been. Uh, When you think back, Yaakov, the last time we spoke, uh, we talked about uh, the chances of Netanyahu forming the coalition, and uh, we thought it was a no-brainer because he had 65 seats and it seemed like a natural uh, coalition of right-wing partners. But when you actually took a look at the math, you could see that every single party was absolutely vital for the coalition. So each one decided, okay, I'm going to put my maximum demands on the table. And what you would normally expect in a situation like that is uh, people would start compromising as we got closer to the deadline. But in this case, everyone said, well, why should I compromise? Netanyahu cannot make a coalition without me. That goes for Shas, that goes for UTJ, that goes for Lieberman, that goes for uh, the United Right Party. Everyone looked at the math and said, he needs us, so you know, we're going to stick to our guns. And then the whole thing fell
0: apart. And essentially, that is sort of the advantage and disadvantage of a parliamentary system where one party with just a few seats can literally stop the entire government from operating.
1: In this case, it proved to be a very big disadvantage. And, uh, you know, we could end up with the same situation after the next election as well. It's not at all clear that
0: uh, Netanyahu is going to get any kind of a bigger majority for the right wing. And that's what I keep wondering, why would anybody assume, I know there are some polls that suggest that you know, he may not need Lieberman uh, next time around, but I would think heavy odd that we're just gonna have a big do over.
1: Well, this is a do over election and uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's impossible that there might not have to be another one. Uh, Right now the polls show that Lieberman seems to have strengthened by taking the stand that he did. I I think we have to be careful about that because it's very, very early in the game. There's uh, three months to the next election. And uh, Netanyahu is going to really go out with killer instinct this time against Lieberman. As far as he's concerned at this point, Lieberman has brought down uh, two governments of his. And he's not going to go easy on him at all. He's going to go after, and the Likud especially, is going to go after the Russian voter, uh, which is the main base of Lieberman. And uh, it's going to be a very, very difficult campaign. Although, it also, they are saying that, you know, Lieberman is not a pussycat. He knows how to fight back.
0: Right. Do you give any credence to the theory that Lieberman was really planning all along to kind of sabotage Netanyahu? And really, this was his intent from day one?
1: I don't think his goal was to sabotage Netanyahu. I think his goal was to position himself. Uh, His uh, campaign signs all along said uh, in Hebrew uh, were, Yemin Chiloni, that I'm right-wing and I'm also chiloni. And that's the vote that he's going for. He's going for the people who uh, are right-wing, but who really uh, want a more secular government and aren't excited about uh, the Likud's partnership with uh, the Haredi parties. So uh, uh, Lieberman found himself a position, and uh, when he saw that he was getting support, especially in the media, so he said, I'm going to stick with my gun. So again, I don't think it was that he wanted to bring down Netanyahu. I think that he's just found a niche for himself, or he thinks he's found a niche for himself, and uh, one in which he's going to be successful running at in the future.
0: And that's very interesting because he's clearly leveraging that, that segment of the population who resents Bibi Netanyahu partnering uh, with the Haredim, with the from parties in general. And then that really kind of begs the question, let's say for argument's sake, uh, Avig Lieberman got what he wanted with the draft law, which is obviously not going to happen. Would that satisfy him? Or even at that point, is he still unhappy with the partnership uh, with these from and Haredi parties?
1: You know, when you feed uh, meat to a lion, Yakov so uh, they only get hungrier and hungrier. Had, uh, <laughs> had, had Lieberman won in this particular case, had he gotten his way, then I think he would have uh, pushed his luck, if you will, he would have kept going. And in, in that case, it was right of the Haredim not to back down any further than they did, because then they just end themselves in a position where they'd be at a tremendous disadvantage in the next government.
0: Funny, I said very similar thing recently about President Trump and the Democrats in the United States, where if he would give in and give them all the things they're demanding, the subpoenas, the investigations, et cetera, they would just keep wanting more and more. I think he's correct to fight it. At a certain point, as you said, very, very astutely, you're just feeding the lion. So can you walk us through, I think a lot of people uh, want to understand the details of the controversy, the debate over the draft bill—obviously, you know this has been going on for a very long time. But are you able to walk us through kind of the back and forth and the negotiations on the draft bill?
1: Well, this has really been going on for well over a decade. Uh, uh, you know, when I first made uh, aliyah, basically there were blank and this was 26 years ago. There were basically blanket exemptions for uh, uh, the Haredi community. Right. One who wanted to and said, "I'm learning Torah," so. Uh, they got an exemption to the army. Uh, That was replaced around uh, maybe 2003, Uh, I'm not a thousand percent sure of the date, it could be 2003, 2005 by the Tao Law, uh, which basically uh, started to uh, crimp some of those exemptions. Uh, But at the same time, what used to be the case is that if a Haredi did not serve in uh, the IDF, then he wasn't able to enter the job market. So that started to change around 2003, 4, 5. Actually, a lot of it because of Stanley Fisher. When he was uh, Bank of Israel governor, he said, you know, what's most important is the economy in Israel, and we have to get uh, Haredim and Arabs into the workforce, and therefore don't punish Haredim for not being in the army, uh, make sure they get into the workforce. So that was around the time that the Taloa came about, where the Taloa said that uh, Okay, a Haredi can now get an exemption only until age 22 or 23, and then after that they face a year of decision. So with that year of decision, they can then decide they want to remain in the Torah world, or they can decide that, you know, at some point we want to uh, do something different, and then they would be able to uh, declare that this is the year of decision, and then they could uh, segue into uh, the job market at some point. Uh, that too was then ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court because the way the Supreme Court looks at it is that uh, you have to have equality in society. They look at everything in terms of human rights and their attitude is yes we understand that uh, there is a concept of exemption for Torah scholars and they accept that. The Supreme Court's not against that. What they're saying is that it has to be applied in a, in a more fair way according to their sense of fairness uh, for example, to single out uh, Haredim who are learning and not to give the same possibility for exemptions to college students, to them, that's discriminatory and it's against human rights. So basically what the Supreme Court said is come up with a plan that will allow there to be equality and that there will still be exemptions, but uh, it won't be such in such a blatant fashion uh, tilted toward the Haredim.
0: And I just to interject for a second. Approximately when was that Supreme Court ruling?
1: Uh,
0: that was about two years ago. And, and-, and that... At that point, I'm sorry, they're saying that, yes, we're actually perfectly okay accepting exemptions for yeshiva bachrim. But as you say, it can't be specifically about yeshiva bachrim. It has to be anybody learning in, I guess, an acceptable institution.
1: Absolutely. You have to read, uh, you have to read the, the ruling carefully. The, the Supreme Court ruling, the last one on the Haredi draft, was about 150 pages long in Hebrew. I read it twice. So uh, I can say I did wow. Hazara on at least. <laughs> But it's uh, it's quite complicated. Uh, but you know, it's important to read. It's important to be knowledgeable about these things because otherwise, it's very easy to uh, it's very easy to look at it in a very superficial type of way and they and say, you know, the Supreme Court is against this and uh, we're for that, and then it becomes a, a zero sum game. It's right. not it, Again, the the Supreme Court does recognize the concept of uh, exemptions for Torah scholars. Uh, the question is uh, how is it going to apply and how many of them should there be? So basically the compromise that was reached, which in essence the Haredi parties agreed to, was that uh, there would be an increasing number of uh, Haredim entering uh, the IDF, which there are anyway. There's approximately eight to 9,000 young men uh, in the Haredi world who turn age 18 every year. And in recent years, probably close to 3,000 of them have either been going into the army or uh, going into uh, national service. And the new law, which was passed in the first reading, and the one that Lieberman is stubborn for and says we can't change one word, basically set the level of requirement for a Haredi draft at the level that is basically at right now. In other words, he he wasn't demanding, nor was the court demanding that we go from 3,000 to 5,000, at least not right away. Uh, they said, we'll start with this number, and this is the number that we're getting, and this is the number that we'll accept. But uh, there's two issues. Number one, the, uh, the the number rises every year. And uh, if you take a look at the at the law, if you look maybe 10, 12 years up the road from now, so the demand is that at least 50% of uh, the Haredim who are turning 18 will go into the draft. And that's just not going to happen, uh, number one. And, and I think the second issue, which was also, uh, uh, you know, something that Lieberman was, was being stubborn on, was that, you know, what they've always done, and ultimately, it, it really everybody knows at this point that uh, the Haredim en masse are not going to the draft. Even secular people know that. And they also know that uh, in a natural way, there are more Haredim who are going into the draft, but they're not going to force them. So, you know, basically what they're saying is that... Uh, You know, we can have a quota, but uh, the problem was that they want to actually start deducting money from the budgets of the yeshivas if they don't make that ever rising quota year after year. Now, why, in my mind, why the Supreme Court doesn't consider that a violation of human rights and fairness, I'm not sure. When you think of it, why should a yeshiva lose money Uh, because uh, a student makes a life choice Uh, especially when he's following uh, the way he's been trained, which is uh, to be brought up to learn Torah. But but apparently the Supreme Court didn't consider that aspect of it. And uh, that was also a very big sticking point. So, you know, that was written into the previous law. And, uh, you know, Lieberman said, you know, we're not gonna change one letter of that previous law. Whereas uh, the Haredi parties were saying that, you know, this never happens, that there is no change whatsoever between a first reading of a law uh, which afterwards the law goes to a uh, Knesset committee for discussion. And then the second and third readings of the law, uh, reading meaning a vote in a sense. And uh, they said, we're going to make some changes. We're going to make some uh, some tweaks so that uh, this is more palatable to us. So uh, bottom line, the compromise that Netanyahu offered was that instead of the quotas being set in concrete, the minister of defense, or I'm sorry, the cabinet would decide what those numbers should be. And uh, that was supposedly a very uh, clever way of giving everyone a victory. Lieberman could say, well, the law passed uh, as is, and the Haredim could say, okay, we don't have to worry because instead of the quotas, the cabinet will decide how many of us should uh, go into the army every year. But even that fell apart because Lieberman said, uh, no, can't change one word, because as soon as the decision is, uh, a- a- as soon as the quota system is put in the hands of the cabinet, uh, the cabinet will bend to the wishes of the Kharadim. So, it's, you know, that's a very long explanation of uh, of what's going on right now.
0: Yeah, no, and it's absolutely fascinating. And, uh, and Lieberman, essentially, I mean, what you're saying is that Lieberman kind of viewed that compromise as him caving in because everybody knows that the bottom line is, you know, the Haredim, the numbers that the Haredim want would ultimately be what's happening, wink, wink, and the funding would remain intact, and it's just kind of an offer for Lieberman to save face. At least that's how he viewed it.
1: Yeah, and, and it's interesting because basically uh, all of this is up to the Minister of Defense anyway. At any point, the Minister of Defense can decide we have enough manpower or we need more manpower and then they can go to the government and say, you know, please give us what we need because of such and such reason. So uh, it, it's always up to the defense minister to decide how many people are going to be drafted and how—I uh, mean, ultimately, how many people are going to be drafted and go into the army. Uh, and, and of course, uh, something that uh, even Lieberman admits and something that isn't publicized very much is that the, well over 40 percent of the non-religious Israelis don't complete their army service and probably 20 to 30% of secular Israel doesn't go into the army at all. So uh, on the one hand, you have a uh, ever-increasing rate of Haredim entering the army, and you have an ever-increasing rate at the same time of secular people not going into the army at all, and even if they do, not completing their army service.
0: Interesting, that, and, wh- and that, why is that? That? That, yeah. that you don't hear too much about. But, yeah, no, uh, exactly, why is that? Why are the seculars either not joining or why are they leaving, early? what's the official reason for that? Uh, I
1: don't know if there's an official reason. I think uh, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who, who are uh, uh, who are misfits in some cases. Uh-huh. There are people who have uh, abuse issues, uh, shall we say, and uh, they couldn't pass. Uh, they couldn't pass a test, just like athletes are tested for uh, for right. substances. So uh, you know, the army also they're very strict about that. Uh, and there's also probably a, a larger amount of what we would call conscientious objectors at this point, who uh, just feel you know they don't want to fight or they think that
0: uh, really. Yeah, they is not just don't want to be drafted.
1: Uh, yeah, they don't want to be drafted or they feel that, you know, they don't want to go uh, into the army and then have to uh, serve in Judea and Samaria and have to uh, support what they call the occupations. So there are more people who are finding a way out. Uh, uh, you know, you can also, uh, you know, a lot of people will do this, but you, know, you can go to your recruiting uh, session and you can act like a bit of a Meshuganah. And then they'll <laughs> say that, uh, okay, uh, you know, this guy's a misfit. So, you know, there's a lot more people who are, who are playing that game.
0: Is it fair to say that if Haredim never were drafted into the army, you know, the numbers would be there and it would really be fine? And this is much more about kind of forcing the Haredim to be equal to everybody else and and about an anti from agenda than it is about defense and the army? Uh, the
1: the uh, the one the one area that I would be a little bit more cautious on is uh, is the anti from agenda because I I, I I try not to attribute that uh, to people I I don't think in most cases uh, uh, the demands or the interest that Haredim serve in the army or go into the workforce uh, stem from an anti from agenda they, they they stem from certain fears uh, especially uh, economically speaking that. If you don't get more Haredim into the workforce, so then basically, uh, uh, you know, there's not going to be enough taxes being paid and the economy is not going to run. The government won't be able to provide the services and benefits that they do. Uh, But there's always been... Understandable. Yeah, there's always been a big issue in Israel about about equality and about the feeling that uh, it's not fair that the Haredim don't go into the army. And there are people who also uh, feel from that viewpoint. But, you know, on the other hand, if you take a look at uh, what's actually happening again, you know, when you see that more Haredim are signing up, and when you also see that the manpower needs are much different now, because, uh, you know, who knows, uh, the next war, you know, that Bezvat Hashem shouldn't have to be fought. uh, The next war could end up being a a cyber war. Uh, We don't know that it's going to be hand-to-hand combat in the streets of Gaza or in the cosmos of uh, of Janine. So the manpower needs of the army are very different. And, you know, sophisticated people realize that there are other solutions. Uh, there's been talk about an all-volunteer army. I, I don't think that there's enough people here uh, to support that kind of situation. And, and on the other hand, there are also a lot of secular people who understand that, you know, you can't force people into the army. There, are, uh, I've interviewed on, on many occasions uh, very intelligent uh secular people who are professors and uh, who are heads of organizations who say that uh, you know, th- there are some people who are just, it's not in their culture. And uh, you can't take uh, the Haredi society here in Eretz Israel and expect to change them and turn them into uh, every man. It's just not going to happen.
0: It's Great point. Uh, getting back to the elections here, as fascinating as this is for a moment, uh, is there any chance that Bibi Netanyahu loses control of Likud?
1: I'd say the chances are very slim at this point, but uh, the the big problem for Netanyahu is uh, his legal problems. And uh, as you get to uh, the September election, so right now his new, uh, Shimua, his new hearing with Mandelblit, the Attorney General, uh, where Netanyahu will have a chance to uh, refute the charges against him and convince Mandelblit not to indict him. So that new hearing date is set for October 2nd, and Mandelblit already postponed it. Uh, because Netanyahu's lawyer said they need more time to review the files. I I highly doubt that he's going to postpone it again, and it's going to be really tricky this time, because you have an election on September 17. uh, That will give uh, Netanyahu... It takes about a week or two after the election to uh, get organized, and then he has four to six weeks to form a government, So, which means that October through mid-November is the time that Netanyahu will be trying to form a coalition, and October 2nd, he's supposed to uh, sit for the hearing, in front of Mandelblitz. Mandelblitz uh, made it clear that, I'm not gonna let political considerations get in the way anymore. So, uh, you know, by the time uh, Netanyahu announces his government, uh, you know, we could have a month or two later, we could have a decision on an indictment.
0: I mean, talk about drama. And there was a lot of discussion about how Netanyahu was hoping to form a coalition and then have a law passed that would make him immune as, prime, as a sitting prime minister from being indicted, obviously that's not going to happen in that time frame.
1: Yeah, Guy Sar definitely uh, is, uh, is credited for putting that idea to rest. He came out very strong against the idea. He said that it would uh, be, be very harmful for the Likud. And uh, basically, once he, who's uh, very powerful within the Likud, came out and said that I don't think it's a good idea, then basically other people fell in line. And then Netanyahu basically had to back down and said, well, you know, I really didn't want to do it this way anyway. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's basically to answer your question, that's how Netanyahu could lose uh, control of the league, could, I don't think before the election, but he could lose control of it shortly after the election where you have a coalition and then he gets indicted. And even though legally he's allowed to serve, uh, but you might have more voices saying, well, you know, do we really want this? and if you get to a point where uh, uh, we have an election result similar to what we saw this time, and Netanyahu has difficulty, once again, putting
0: together a coalition, or can't put together a coalition, then I think that really could be the end of him. And, no, but essentially, if I understand you correctly, you're saying theoretically, he could be indicted in October and he still could form a coalition while he's under indictment. And, and technically, legally... He can, in fact, be the prime minister and rule over that coalition, but politically it could damage him to have a sitting prime minister newly elected with his coalition who's on trial for criminal charges. Uh,
1: Correct. The indictment wouldn't come as early as October because the hearing would be October 2nd. But uh, I don't think Mandelblatt would take more than a month or two to, to make a decision. So it could be shortly after a coalition is formed. That's when the indictment would be handed down and uh, again as i said earlier if he has if he stumbles again and can't make a coalition then that's that's definitely curtains for him even if he does uh, you'll certainly start hearing voices that uh, you know is this what uh, we want even though Netanyahu legally can continue as prime minister uh, even under indictment, then you know a trial would take uh, probably a year, and then until the judges decide, because we don't have jury trials in Israel, it's uh, uh, cases are heard before judges. So until the judges decide, it could be another year. So Netanyahu could squeeze out another year or two of rule, either under indictment. But again, the question is, uh, does Likud get restless, and do they say, well? You know, this guy's under indictment and uh, he's weaker than he was before and the challenges are greater than ever and and is this really the way we want the country to be run and at that point there could be some calls within the Likud for him to step down
0: i mean it's absolutely fascinating and my final question is why i always wonder for the haredi community for the from community population in Ertisrael, what is the best case scenario? Obviously, they do have a partner in Netanyahu. Is the best case scenario for Bibi Netanyahu to figure out a way to keep control or is there some other scenario or is there a risk here of them really being harmed if that does not happen?
1: The uh, UTJ, United Torah Judaism Party, uh, meaning uh, the Degel Torah and uh, the Hasidic branch, right. uh, as well as Shas basically have already said that uh, they're going to support Netanyahu again Uh, to form the next government, assuming that the Likud gets the most votes. So uh, obviously the Haredim feel that uh, Netanyahu is on their side, and Netanyahu likes the Haredim. He sees them as uh, natural coalition partners and uh, people who aren't uh, ambitious to topple him. Uh, On the other hand, uh, you know, there is life after Binyamin Netanyahu. You know, Ben-Gurion served a long time, and uh, you know, Golda Meir and others were in office for a long time. And, uh, you know, we, ha- we do have to look uh, to the day after Benjamin Netanyahu, and it could be that day's coming sooner rather than later, and right. if Likud uh, should win, and uh, let's say if someone like uh, uh, Gidon Saar ends up being uh, the uh, leader of the Likud and the prime minister, I, I think he would be very f- friendly also. Uh, I, I even think that uh, if Benny Gantz uh, were to be the prime minister, uh, Benny Gantz is not anti-religious or anti-Haredi. Uh, I think that he would also want the Haredim in the coalition, and they would be able to work together as well.
0: Right. He has claimed, certainly publicly, he, it was very self-serving because he wanted the votes. But he has claimed to be very Haredi-friendly. That is a good point.
1: Yeah, and and I think that uh, I think that he would be able to make a coalition with the Haredim, although. Uh, uh, my uh, my hunch is that we're going to see uh, support for him slip as we get later into the election process. You know, this time he was a brand new face and uh, he generated a lot of excitement. Uh, I, I don't see him as an aggressive campaigner with a lot of fire in his belly. And uh, you have Yara Lapid who said basically at this point that yeah, he'll go along with uh, Gantz one more time, but uh, I have a feeling that uh, their star is going to, to fade again. I'd be surprised to see them get uh, as many votes as they got last time. Uh, Interesting. And this will you know, Lieberman could take away votes from the Lapid faction of, uh, of uh, the right. Party. So, you know, you could end up seeing blue and white getting 26, 27 seats and Lieberman getting eight, nine, or 10.
0: And Lieberman, ironically, getting stronger by the new elections, which is not. That's not- what the initial polls show.
1: Again, I, I you have to be very careful because uh, Netanyahu is going to really go head to head with Lieberman. And uh, depending on how effective a campaign he runs, he might be able to weaken Lieberman significantly. But that's uh, one side. of But the other side of it is that Lieberman gains strength at the expense of uh, the Lapid wing of Blue and White, and he ends up uh, he ends up being uh, the the second or, or not the second, but he ends up being the third largest party and the uh, the kingmaker in the next uh, coalition. Is,
0: th- is there a chance we see President Trump campaign for Bibi Netanyahu? There's been reports that he
1: might come to Israel uh, during the campaign. I, I, I tend to doubt it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the president uh, gave a few tweets. I think he's also frustrated with the the Israeli political system. I, I think President Trump has uh, his hands full in America. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, between tariffs and, uh, you know, between the, really the uh, the campaign is now starting to gear up in, in the U.S. for the 2020 presidential election. So uh, I, I don't see Trump overtly campaigning for Netanyahu. Uh, I think he's made his sentiments known, uh, but I think he's going to uh, stay close to home.
0: Rose, I could literally discuss this with you for hours. Fascinating your clarity, your level of detail. Very, very much appreciated. Benjamin Rose, editor-at-large of Mishpacha Magazine and former 14-year news editor. Thank you, and we hope to speak with you soon.
1: My pleasure, Yaakov. Always looking forward